The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear God's word from Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised them. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous in the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death for the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, but who am I but dust and ashes? Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of the ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Well, you are brave this morning. Or you ice skated here, one or the other. Um, Just so you know, in doing ministry for like 10 years, I think I've canceled service once. So it's probably never going to happen unless it's like... So if you're like, I wonder... No, I'll still be here. All right, if it's me and Joel, then it's me and Joel. But we we very, very rarely cancel, especially when we're in in Center City and they usually take care of the streets pretty well. So you can know that um, unless it's awful, we're not going to be canceling. Um, To let you guys know, you can hear, probably you can hear my voice here. Um, I got the flu, came down with the flu this week and uh, awful, just an awful, awful, awful week. And uh, now I blessed my children with it. So my wife's at home with them. And uh, so I've already let the sound guy know, like if I turn here, all right, cut the mic because I've been caught. I mean, I'm not throwing up or nothing, but I've just been coughing up things. I swear have heartbeats. Okay, it's been pretty awful. 
So, <clears throat> so I'm going to go ahead and preach. I've been, I mean, I, I, I'm excited to preach this passage. Um, if you're new, I mean, I know there's probably not too many new people today because of the weather outside, but if you are new, uh, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here, and we just work our way through books of the Bible, and we're going through the book of Genesis right now. And uh, for me personally, it's been really fruitful. I've enjoyed it. I love seeing what God has for us each and every week in the passages um, that maybe we don't get on just, you know, as we just run through it really quick. And I think God's got something special for us again today. We have done this now for, been in it for a long time. It's the 20th week in uh, our Genesis series. And we are at uh, halfway through Genesis 18. So I'm going to go ahead and pray and then we're going to get started. Gracious Father, um, I do thank you for giving us your word. I thank you for calling us together as your people that we're not here this morning because I had a dream or I had an idea. We're here this morning because you called us here. We're here because you handpicked from across the city and across this nation uh, individuals and families and couples to bring together into one body called Sacred City Church where we could proclaim your gospel we could live in community around the gospel. And Father, we could be sent on mission for the sake of the gospel. And I pray that today you would do all those things, that you would call people who sit in darkness into light, that those of us who have responded to the gospel, that you would deepen our understanding and experience of the gospel, that you would further sanctify us. Let us see the glory in the face of Jesus Christ in a new way. And let us, beholding that glory, let us be changed by it from one degree of glory to another. And Father, those of us who sit comfortably on the sidelines, rebuke us for our lack of love for our neighbor and our lack of love for our city and empower us with the gospel and remind us how you came after us today and do what no amount of guilt and no amount of condemnation and no amount of pressure from the pulpit could do. Do what only the Spirit of God and the gospel of God could do, send us out joyfully on mission to our city, to our friends, to our neighbors, and bring in fruit, Father. Uh, we pray this for your name. We pray for this for your kingdom. We pray this for your, your glory and our joy. I ask that you would um, anoint my sick body today, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, um, that this would be your spirit and your eternal words spoken through me and not just my um, ramblings this morning. So I pray all this in your name and also anoint the ears of those who hear. Anoint us to hear and to apply and to do and obey and to be changed, Father. In your name, amen. All right. So again, I apologize. I'm already feeling like my voice is getting scratchy. So I wonder if I asked for a a show of hands today, uh, how many of us struggle or feel like we struggle with prayer. Uh, Whenever I ask a person how their prayer life is going, a lot of times that's a sign of where they're at with Jesus. When I ask a person, how's your prayer life going? 99% of the time, they say, oh, not as well as it could be. That's all right. It's not not like it should be. That is like, I swear, the answer answer I get 99% of the time. There's like this general sense of I'm not doing it good enough. Uh, I don't do it often enough. I'm probably doing it wrong. 
Um, there's just this, people don't really get prayer. They don't understand what it's about, who, you know, how it goes on. So they always kind of feel inadequate. And I was studying this week, and according to a recent uh, Barna poll, about 84% of people surveyed said that they had prayed within the past week. That's just over four out of five people. So the majority of people in our country, in our society, pray. All right? Over 84% said they prayed within the last week. But here's the thing. If you ask those same people who it is exactly who they're praying to, they get a little confused. Well, you know, I kind of just think that, you know, there's this higher power and, you know, it's the big man upstairs and, and you know, call him what you want, Right? Most of those people would deem themselves, it seems over half of those want to deem themselves as spiritual, but not religious. Spiritual, but not religious. That means they pray, but they don't attend church on a regular basis or claim any one organized religion. That would include some atheists and agnostics who believe in some kind of higher power. I smoke cigars at the cigar bar across town uh, with a guy all the time. He said, whoa, you know, he, first he was an atheist. And then, uh, you know, we, you know, thanks, thanks to some, some Porterbrook and some stuff, backed him into a corner. Well, I'm not an atheist. Yeah, ha, ha, ha. I believe in a higher power. So now he believes in a higher power. We've got him one step closer here, which is a great thing, right? So a lot of people want to be, I know there's something out there. There's some kind of higher power. There's some kind of energy. There's something that I want to tap into to help me live my life. All right, now, is that God? I, I don't want to know. I don't, I don't know, right? So you ask these people, do you believe in God? Well, yeah, something up there. Do you go to church? No. Do you believe in an organized religion? No. Do you pray? Yeah. Tim Keller uh, commenting on this trend, and he's in Center City, uh, uh, Center City New York, so Manhattan. Um, so a lot of things, the trends that are happening in Manhattan 10, 20 years ago are now happening here in the Midwest. He was commenting on this. He said this, um, it seems that the majority of people in our world today want some kind of spiritual connection, but they want it on their own terms. So people want a spiritual connection, but they want it on their own terms. Now, most spiritual people view prayer, listen, most spiritual people view prayer as a way of reaching out to some higher power in hopes for a connection that will help their life in some way. Okay? So spiritual but not religious people, as well as the majority of the world's religion, view prayer as man's attempt to connect with God. Man's attempt to somehow summon some energy or summon a higher power to go to work on my behalf. Fix my marriage, bring me money, bring me goodies, heal my body. I need to tap in, help me get some higher level of consciousness. They seem, see prayer as somehow extending ourselves to make a connection with God. Prayer is a human being trying to get the attention of and spark a connection with a higher power. Okay? So nobody really says this. 
They don't really feel like they're like dancing here and trying to get wave and get God's attention. But in a sense, in reality, that's what we're doing. Oftentimes, spiritual, not religious, every other world religions, they go to God to procure some blessing from him. That's prayer. But this is where the Bible is so distinct over and against the spiritual but not religious and also over and against other world religions. Listen, in the Bible, real spirituality is responding to a living God who speaks and acts and has come to you. Totally different than the spiritual but not religious. Totally different than all the other world religions that believe Prayer is man trying to get God's attention. Prayer is man trying to tap into a higher power. Hear me. The Bible says prayer is man responding to a real God who has came down, who has initiated, who has called us to prayer. Unfortunately, I think that the majority of these people, even so-called Christians, think that prayer is about getting God's attention and, again, procuring some of his blessing on us or on some of our endeavors. This spiritual but not religious ideology has also now uh, been given the title Moralistic Therapeutic Deism. Cut me off, brother. Here we go. Moralistic therapeutic deism by the sociologist Christian Smith. It has been stated that this is the major religion in our world or in our culture today, especially amongst young people. They don't know that, of course. They still label themselves and call themselves Christians or spiritual, or Jesus followers, or whatever. But their faith, listen, but their faith is not shaped by the Bible as much as it is shaped by their own feelings about the world. They kind of, listen, this is what happens. What they're doing is they're praying to a God of their own making. They're praying to a figment, listen, They're praying to a God who is a figment of their imagination, a projection of their own desires. And their whole reason behind this prayer is to receive some warm fuzzies that will help them be good. I want you to check yourself right now. Ask yourself, is that why you pray? So... You can call it Jesus, but if the figment of your imagination is when, you, when, you, when you're praying to Jesus, if you're praying to him, like you've got to procure a blessing, like you've got to get his attention, and what you really need is a warm fuzzy from him, a blessing on whatever it is you're trying to do. Are you really praying to the God of the universe, or are you praying to a God you've made in your own image? A God you fashioned after your own desires, a projection of your own desires. A French writer from the 18th century, Voltaire, he said it best. He said this, 
God has made us in his image and now we have returned the favor. So God has made us in his image, but now we try to shape God into our image. It doesn't work both ways. People sometimes ask me, Justin, why do you preach so theological? Why are you always on a theology? You always want to listen. Why is theology so important? Because we have a sinful tendency to try to shape God into the God that we all want. We have a sinful tendency to try to shape the real God who's a real person with real attributes and a real personality. We want to say, I don't want that God. He's too wild. I want to shape a God for my own desires. A God who likes me. Right? I want a God who likes me. I want a God who likes people like me. I want a God who doesn't like the people who aren't like me. The guys, the people that I don't like, I want God not to like those people. Right? I want God on my side. That God, now listen, that God, that God that's in your mind, no matter his attributes, is actually not a God at all. In that situation, who's God? You are. If you're shaping and molding the God of your choosing, I want to worship a God who's fill in the blank. Who's God? Really, King? You're shaping the God that you want to worship. Really? That places you above him. And now you're God. But in the Bible... And in this section of Genesis, today, Abram, Abraham, he's going to meet the real God. And we're going to get to see him too. And this is a God, we know he's real, and this is a God that we know is real because it's a God that nobody would dream up. No human being would naturally want this God. A God who is infinitely holy. Nobody would be like, I want a God that's like, like the sun. Right? Untouchable. Right? And that's the only thing that, when I try to say holy, most of us, we have, we have no idea what that means. And I, I almost think of like an unapproachability, something completely other, something completely different from us. That if you get close to it, you're consumed. Who wants a God like that? Like none of us do, right? But we're going to meet this God who is infinitely holy, but at the same time, infinitely loving. A God who sees everything and calls everything that is against him and against his ways sin. But also a God who is willing to be gracious and forgive if justice can be served and recompense can be made. So here we are. Genesis 18, halfway through the book, um, halfway through the chapter, We're starting in verse 16. Abram is getting ready to offer up the first extended prayer in the Bible. Now, you've already heard it in the reading of Scripture. It's kind of a crazy prayer. You know, as soon as we read it, you know, we're we're studying it this week. And I said, this seems like it's a, it's let's make a missional deal with God. Right? Abraham going back and forth, seeing how, how far he can push God. 
But in it, we're going to learn a lot about God. We're going to learn a lot about Abraham. We're going to learn a lot about uh, just how different the Bible's version of prayer is compared to other religions and the spiritual but not religious crowd. If you can remember from last week, three men came and visited Abram. Except they weren't men, right? Two of them were angels and one was Jesus. Pre-incarnate Jesus. A couple thousand years before Jesus is born. That in itself is amazing. And that in itself should cause our jaws to drop. Because listen, think about this. After all of Abraham's failures, after all of his sinning, his constant rebellion, rebellion, his foolishness, his misunderstanding of God's promise, him going off the rails, after all of that, God still comes down and eats lunch with him. God initiated this meeting, not Abraham. Abraham wasn't come down in his tent praying for God to send him a sign, praying for God to show up. Pray. God initiated. And Jesus came down and eats lunch with Abram. Man, that's just cool. Christianity, is, I mean, it is supernatural and it is spiritual, but it's so earthy too. Jesus comes down, what's he want to do? Eat lunch. That's what he wants to do. Right? I mean, this is one of the reasons we share meals together so often. It's a common expression of being human. It's a common, it's, it's communion together. Right? And Jesus comes down and sups with him. It's, it's great. So they eat lunch. And then they get up and start walking towards Sodom. Right? These cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you remember, Sodom was the city of sin. It was the city of wickedness where Abram's nephew Lot moved into a few chapters back. It really is sin city. <clears throat> I'm not looking, I'm really not looking forward to preaching uh, what's going to happen next week. Okay? It's dark, it's disturbing, it's disgusting. Um, but if you like Law and Order Special Victims Unit, you won't want to miss next week. Okay? I'm just going to let you know. <clears throat> but there you go. All right, that, that's, that's what happens. They, they get up, so they eat lunch, right? They, they deliver a message to Sarah, and then they get up and they start walking towards these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There they go. And as they walk, Jesus stops and says out loud, look, in, look at verse 16, the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abram went with them to set them on their way. So they're all walking. The Lord said, that's Jesus, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Man, my voice is just awful. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, this is just funny, right? Anytime somebody goes, mm, should I tell you or not? I don't know. Should I tell you this? You know, they've already made up in their mind to tell you. They just want to see how bad do you want to know? Oh, did you see? You know about her, right? Oh, I mean, should I tell you that? I don't know. Should I tell you? Are, you know you made it up in your mind to tell me. Just tell me. Yes, I want to know. Or no, I don't even want to know. Right? So, again, this is what Jesus is doing to Abraham. This is so gracious. Abraham is not trying to procure some blessing from Jesus. Jesus, would you, would you, what's going on right now? Hey, would you kind of bless what I'm trying to do? You know, I'm, I want to make this baby over here. And I want Abraham is responding to Jesus's initiation. So Jesus goes, mm, should I tell you? Should I tell you what I'm about to do? 
And remember, this is a covenant. And God did, it was a unilateral covenant, but then God graciously kind of includes Abram, Abraham into this covenant and says, now I want us to be partners. And if we're going to be partners in this covenant, if we're going to be partners here, I want you to know what I'm doing. I want you to be with me. I want you to understand who I am and what I'm all about and, and what the mission of God is. I want you to understand this. So Jesus goes, should I tell you him or not? And then Jesus goes on and says this. Seeing that Abraham will surely become a great nation and a mighty nation, he reminds Abraham of the promise. And of all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Look, for I have chosen him. There's a little number two. If you have an ESV, there's a little number two because that word chosen, it kind of gets the point of cross. But in reality, the, the Hebrew word is I have, um, I am friends with him. I am intimate with him. <clears throat> so again, I, w- I want you to see this here. Abraham is not going to pry God's will out of Jesus. He's not going to Jesus and begging him to understand all the details of the covenant, all the details of the promise. Jesus is making the first move and Abraham stops and listens. That's how prayer looks. Jesus calls, we respond. Jesus moves, we react. And look, look, what, look what Jesus says. I have called him. What it, the, the word there is actually, I have known him. This is Jesus saying, I have chosen Abraham and he is my intimate friend. This covenant, Abraham, he's wanting Abraham to know this. Listen, this covenant began by grace. Yes, but but, but, but look here. Look what's next. For I have chosen him, all grace, right? You didn't choose me, I chose you. You are my intimate friend. It began by grace, Abraham. This is my deal. But then look what he says. That, so we could say, so that, the reason he was chosen is so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. We have responsibilities inside the covenant of obedience. We have responsibilities inside the covenant to raise our children in the way of the Lord. All right, look, look what else he says. <clears throat> Command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by what? By doing righteousness and justice. By doing righteousness and justice. Now, this is the first time where God makes it perfectly clear to Abraham the moral responsibilities that are required to be his people. Jesus says, Abraham, keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and by doing justice. <clears throat> now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hit you hard on this because it's, we get so confused at this. This is a covenant that was began by grace. But Abraham must also obey God by walking in his ways and teaching his children to do the same. But the foundation of the covenant is still grace. The covenant was begun by grace. It will be maintained by grace. But obedience is required. Okay? Obedience in what? He says this. I love this. Do righteousness and do justice. 
do righteousness and do justice. Now, what does that mean? Both of these, righteousness and justice, relate to life inside a community. A life promoting social order in light of God's rules and his ways of living. The commentary that, I, that we sell out in the, at the bookstore, Bruce Wadke, says this. A righteous person, they're not the same, righteous and justice, they're not the same. A righteous person rightly orders community. So listen, a righteous person builds a missional community in a righteous way, in a way that honors the humanity of all the people involved. A righteous person tries to structure this community in such a way that people can flourish. If you have a righteous society, you have a society where human beings can flourish. You have laws and you have, you know, police and you have ways to govern society to bring about human flourishing. Okay? God wants us to be people who seek righteousness, who seek to order community and order our nation and order our governments and order our cities in a righteous way. But also, justice is one who works to restore broken community. So righteousness tries to build a righteous community and justice works to restore a righteous community, especially by punishing the oppressor and delivering the oppressed. Now listen, but what I'm about to get in is nuanced. Okay, it's the easiest way I can say it. Um, if you're simple, I'm just gonna tell you that. If you're simple, and a lot of us want to be simple, uh, we just, I don't want to struggle. I don't want to think hard. I don't want to, I don't want any gray. I, I just want black and white. Um, this might be difficult for you. <clears throat> I know that, but it's also really important that you see what is going on here. See, so many people, so many of us, we don't want to do the hard work of studying the Bible to really understand grace and to really grasp the gospel. So they either get really scared of preaching grace and they fall on off on the one side of the horse called legalism, or they don't understand the purpose of righteousness and justice and obedience to God. So they fall off on the other side of the horse into licentiousness. This side says, God is gracious. So it doesn't matter how you live. He'll forgive you and he'll love you anyway. That is not how we see God here, nor is that the purpose for which God saved Abraham. Again, when we do that, we're going in our head and we're shaping God, the God that we want, into our own image and not responding to the real God. See, this is what real spirituality looks like. Abraham is being warmed by grace. Jesus, remember when I called you? Remember when I chose you to be my intimate friend? Remember when I draw? Remember, remember? He's being warmed by grace, but then he's being galvanized by a divine call to do justice and be righteous. Remember when I chose you, had nothing to do with you. You were out by yourself in Ur of the Chaldeans and you were worshiping the moon. Remember, but I called you and I wooed you and I gave you my promise. But listen, son, this ain't some soft little promise here. There's big implications to this covenant that I'm making you. You're going to be my people. The whole world is going to look at you and say, that's what God is like. That's the God of the Bible. So 
I want you to work for righteousness and I want you to be just. I want you to order your society, order the Hebrew people, order the Israel, order Israelites to be a just and a righteous society. And you've got to teach this to your kids. You've got to work hard at this. But again, it's all grace. Do you see this? He's warmed by grace, but he's being galvanized. He's beginning a backbone. He doesn't get warm fuzzies from Jesus that make him bump fists with his homeboy. God is calling Abraham to do something great, to do something the world has never seen, to do something the world can't even make up in their own mind. He's calling him to greatness. It's all by grace, but obedience is required. See, that's what real spirituality looks like. This is not a God of a person's imagination. This is the real God that has the right to demand of you whatever he pleases. Because he created us. He sustains us. And our God, the Psalms tells us, our God is in heaven and can do whatever he pleases. So Jesus, I want you to see this. This is what's going on in our text. Jesus draws Abraham into prayer. He draws Abraham into this type of prayer with a lesson on the covenant of grace. That's how he does it. Remember when I called you? But hey, obedience is required. But hey, I'm going to be faithful to fulfill the promise. It's like a grace sandwich here. Right? I've called you. You have to obey. But I'll keep you. I'll sustain you. I'll fulfill it. But obedience is required. So he gives Abraham this theological lesson on the covenant of grace. And now he waits for Abraham to respond. Well, first he says this. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. (laughs) I'm going to go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Listen. This word outcry is the Hebrew word for, this, for the cries of the oppressed. The cries of the impoverished and the oppressed. God had heard the cries of the poor and oppressed in Sodom and Gomorrah. And now he's ready to clean house again. Right? We've already seen him do this. We saw him do a, we, we saw him do a little bit, or uh, actually on a wide scale, with the flood, right? Wipes out everybody. God has the right to deal out death and judgment. God has the right to call his debts due. And that's what's going on. He says, that city, and he's, and he's, he's talking in a, human, in a human way. He already knows he's omniscient, but he's doing this for Abraham's benefit. So he's kind of playing with Abraham. And he's like, I'm going to go check this out. I'm going to see if they're really as wicked as the prayers and the cries of the oppressed that I've been hearing, if they're really that bad, I'm going to check it out. Now, Abraham knows. Abraham knows about his uncle or his nephew Lot. Abraham knows that this is a city of sin and wickedness. How is Abraham going to respond? We're going to find that out. So, Just to clear this up, the New Testament tells us that every single human being other than Jesus has sinned and fallen short of God's standard and God's ways and therefore deserves 
Do you hear that? Deserves death. That the wages of our sin is death. And God has the right, whenever he so chooses, to wipe cities or countries off the map. That is his justice. That is just. But if God was only just, however, we would all be doomed. But God is also gracious. Now, this is where things get really interesting. Okay? So, Jesus and Abe are walking and talking, and then all of a sudden, Abe stops. After hearing that Jesus is about to go down and inspect the city and deal out justice, Abraham, Scripture says, stands still before the Lord. And then look what it says he does. Verse 23. Then Abraham drew near. Then Abraham drew near. Now that's a, that's a telling statement. Abraham is clearly and conscientiously aware of God's holiness and his right to kill any and all unrighteous person. He just hears Jesus tell him that, you know what, Abraham, I'm in the mood for calling in my debts. I'm going to go check them out. I'm in the justice-dealing mood, Abraham. I'm in the righteous-wielding mood. I'm ready to wipe people off the face of the planet. And Abraham, whoa, Jesus. Abraham draws near. Now, is that... When you hear about the righteousness of God, when you hear about the holiness of God, when you hear about the justice of God, does that cause you to be endeared to Jesus? Does that cause you to draw into him? Or would that cause you to push away? I don't want that holy God. I don't want that righteous God. I want a God that looks over my sins. Listen, can I ask you, what do you do when you don't understand God's ways? What do you do when you know two truths about God that seem to contradict each other? Again, this is nuance, and I want us to do the hard work here. We have a holy God, and we have a gracious God. Those two truths seem to contradict each other. Now, a lot of us, this is what we do. We don't want to do the, the theological work. We don't want to do the intellectual work. We don't want to, we don't like gray and having to think deeply. We just want, this is what we want to do. Oh, I'm just going to throw away one of those truths. These truths seem to contradict. God is holy and gracious. God is just and loving. These seem to contradict. I'm going to throw one of them away. You just lost God when you did that. You just created a false God in your own making, in your imagination. So you can say, I don't like God who takes life. I want a sweet God. I want a God I can cuddle with at night. But what you just did is turn God into some kind of a pansy that has no standards. Therefore, with that sweet little cuddly God... The wicked will never be punished. 
Your sweet God can't deal with the Hitlers of the world. But on the other hand, if you say, well, I don't want a sweet God. I want a God of justice and a God of righteousness and a God of power who makes rules and gets people in line. Well, you got a problem too. Because how can you relate to a God like that? Haven't you already broken some of his rules? So if you've got a God that calls people into line, haven't you, aren't you on the other side of his justice? Aren't you on the other side of his dispensing of his wrath? So we've got a problem here. But we so quickly do this in our culture and we so quickly do this in our mind when we sin. We, oh, God's not really, doesn't really care about my sin. I can do whatever I want, you know. He's gracious. Can we hold, how can we hold both truths? See, if you think grace is throwing out one side or one attribute of God, you're missing it. Grace doesn't turn God into a sweet and soft God who ignores sin. That would make God no longer just. If God just ignores sin, he is no longer a just God and has no right to rule the universe and claim that he's just. So, Derek Kidner, in his commentary on this passage, says that Abraham, Abraham is about to do, listen, what looks like haggling. It looks like... You know, he's in Mexico and he's down and he's, the price says 60 on there and you know you can get it for $8, right? He's going back and forth and he's like, like we, like everybody that goes to Mexico, do they all lie. I've only got $8 in my pocket. And they're, right? And you're going back and forth, get that thing down from 60 down to $8 or whatever it is, right? It looks like that's what he's doing. But Derek Kidner says what he's actually doing is a lot more close, is a lot closer to Theological exploring in prayer. Now, this this intrigued me this week. Theological exploring. So he's saying this. God, I know that you are infinitely just. And you hear the cries of the oppressed and you see people who are being downtrodden and you understand the poor and you, you've resonated with them. I know that you count sin and you see sin and you are righteous and you are just. But Father, God, I've also experienced you as infinitely gracious and loving. So Abraham has got these two truths about God and now he's drawing near to Jesus to work them out, to explore these deep theological truths about God. What does it look like? How does this play out in real life? And he draws near to Jesus to see how this is going to play out. Man, this is challenging. What do we do when we get confused? What do we do when we get frustrated with theology, frustrated with understanding something about God, or frustrated with things in our life? Do we draw near to our community and draw near to Jesus in prayer? Or do we just ah, throw one attribute of God out? I can't understand it. No big deal. In that same commentary, this, it's interesting that this word here, draw near, it's not a cuddly cuddly word. Like he cuddled up with Jesus and put his head on his breast like John does later and says, tell me Jesus what you're about to do. It's a legal term. 
It's used in the same way that lawyers would draw near to the bench and approach the judge. So this is no light encounter for Abraham. Abraham is under... is. I got two things about God. I don't understand it. I'm going to approach the bench here. I'm going to come before the judge of all the world and I'm going to ask him to clarify things for me. And that's what he does. So Abram's deep and solid theology drives him to approach God in prayer. And what does he do? Abraham approaches Jesus and begins to pray for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now listen, there's a lot of interesting stuff here in this prayer. We can learn a lot about prayer. First, Abraham doesn't come to Jesus like some spiritual but not religious person. Listen, a spiritual but not religious person would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, come on, man, really? You're going to wipe away a whole city? There's babies in that city. There's cats and dogs. Right? There's old people. Come on, Jesus. Spare the city. Why do you got to be just? Why can't you be... Why can't you overlook this sin? That's how it's spiritually... Is that how we pray sometimes? We go to God and... God, listen, this is what I want you. Just get me out of this. God, just turn your head this time. I know I screwed up. I know. Just look, look past it. That's not what Abraham prays. He doesn't pray for God just to look past their sin. And, but, but, but there's something else we got to see too. Right? He doesn't just say, come on, big guy. Give him a break. Big man upstairs. Come on. Soften up. Lighten up. It's not a big deal. This is the 21st century, right? Come on. Just love them. We need, they need to know what we're for, not what we're against. Right? All the, all the slogans of our, of our time. That's not what he does. But nor does Abraham come to God like a moralistic person. Kill them all, God. I told you them sinners were bad news. Hey, I've been camped out here for a long time, and I've been watching what's going on in that city. It is nasty. Right? They watch rated R movies in that city, right? I've seen guys smoking cigars in that city. I've seen women wearing high heels in that city. Right? He, listen, he's not approaching God like a moralistic person and saying, God, yep, we're good. That's the bad city. You're right on, man. You are right on. Your target, your senses, A game. Take them out. world would be a lot better without them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't approach God like a moralist. So listen, he doesn't approach God like a liberal person or like a person who's spiritual but not religious and says, God, just overlook their sin. Nor does he approach them like a moralistic person that says, yeah, you're right, God, they are. Kill them. And also a moralistic person would pray like this. Oh, yeah, they're bad news, bad news. Um, but I got some family there. Could, could you save my family? Could you, could you get my uncle or my nephew out? Could you get him out? And then just wipe them out. They're all nasty except for my nephew. Right? That's how we as more moralistic people pray. But no. 
Abraham's understanding of the holiness of God, his understanding of human depravity and human sin, and his understanding of God's love for righteousness, all those things coalesce, all those things come together and gives him a right understanding of God and it drives his prayer life. Now, I think this is interesting. Abraham asks, this is brilliant. Abraham is asking God. He says, God, Jesus, you're, you're going to go look. Okay, listen, this is what I want you to see. If you see the righteousness of 50, can you love that righteousness so much that you would spare the whole city because of it? Whoa. We got to see what's going on here. All right. In many, the, actually, the majority of cultures across the world, if you're a teenager and you commit sin, your parents can be judged. Your sin can be imputed to your parents. Works both ways. In many cultures, if a parent is a lawbreaker or a tax breaker or whatever it is, his sin can be imputed and punished to his children. It's not so. We're we're in a very individualistic culture. It's not as much here, but it still is. This massacre that took place, right, at the Sandy Hook Elementary. One of the first, when they found out it was a kid, one of the first things people were saying is, what kind of parents did he have? Right? It's our natural instinct to blame parents. It's our natural instinct to go, oh, they must have screwed this kid up. Right? That person's sin is being imputed, is being counted towards others, towards the people closest to them. All right? In the Near Eastern culture, sins could be punished, and you're going to have this in the Old Testament, where the father sins and the whole family gets killed. The father sins, the whole family gets wiped out. That the father's sin is imputed, counted, towards the sin of the whole family. So Abraham knew this. Abraham knew that sin, one man's sin, could be counted against other people. But what Abraham is doing here, this is, this is crazy. What Abraham is doing here, he's saying dad's sin can, be, can affect the whole family. But God, Jesus, Jesus, could it work in reverse? Could that principle work in reverse? Can that work backwards? You count the sin of the father towards the children, but could you count the righteousness of a few towards the rest of the city? Hmm. Could the righteousness of a few be imputed to the rest of the city? Now, He's basically saying this, God, I know you see sin and I know you take it seriously. You are holy, just, and a righteous God. But I also know that you are gracious because you love righteousness and justice so much. So much. Could you allow the obedience of a few to be counted towards the many? Brilliant argument. Doesn't go to God and say, God, just look over their sin. Not a big deal. Doesn't go to God and say, wipe them out. 
He says, God, I know you love justice. I know you love righteousness. If we can get down in there and we can inspect it and we can find 50 good people, would you so love the righteousness of those 50 people that you'll spare the whole city? Can we do this? Would you be willing to do this, God? Theological exploring. How does this theology of man's depravity and God's holiness, and how does this all work together? In theological terms, Abraham is arguing for imputed righteousness. And this is phenomenal. Look at verse 27. Look what this verse, look what the prayer does to Abraham. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Listen, this prayer, this theological exploring, this Jesus approaching him and Abraham responding like he's really God and not some figment of his imaginations, not some God created in Abram's image, it has humbled him. See, being in the presence of the real God, this is what it will do to you. Nobody in Scripture walks into the presence of God and then walks out with a swagger. No one does it. No one walks into the presence of God and is like, yeah, I've been waiting for you. Let's talk. No one does it. People that ever walk into it, usually God approaches them, boom, on the floor, out. When you come into the presence of the real God, it humbles you. You realize you're nothing but dust and ashes. In the light of his, you know what? You get to the clo- you get to the sun. What's going to happen? You get to the sun. Dust and ashes. That's what's going to happen. In the presence of the holiness of the sun, you will be you will be become dust and ashes. In the presence of a holy God, we are if we see ourselves rightly, we are dust and ashes. He says, listen to this. This is what he's, through prayer, he's wrestling this. He's wrestling with Jesus here. He's, he's discovering, oh man, Jesus, whoa, I should be wiped out with him. I should be wiped out with the rest of them. But here I am speaking to you, praying to the God of your imagination won't humble you. It won't shock you. It won't fill you with awe. In fact, it won't change you at all. Most people pray and God tells them what they want to hear. Why? Because they're praying to a God of their own imagination. We go to God and say, yeah, you're not that bad. It was that other person's fault. You spoke truth. You spoke rightly. They misunderstood you. Everybody's misunderstanding you. That's not God speaking to you. That's your God in your brain. If every time you go to your prayer closet, you get justified for your behavior, that's not God. That's the figment of your own imagination, justifying your self-righteousness. If you go to God and he tells you, you're not that bad, son. No, you're misunderstood. Nobody else understands the pressure you're under. Nobody else understands how difficult it is to live with that spouse. Nobody else has a child like that. Nobody else gets the pain in your body. Nobody else. You're, there's an, if the God you pray to answers you like that, it's not the God of the Bible. It's not the real God. 
But if you go, when you go to the God of the Bible, you walk away as dust and ashes. I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve to be consumed. I deserve hell. And everything else I've been given, everything else above hell is a gift of grace. Abraham, see, this is changing him. An encounter with God really changes your heart. Coming to church won't change you. Listening to my sermon won't change you. Going to missional community won't change you. An encounter, an experience with the God of the Bible, that will change you. That will melt the heart of stone. That will pump you full of real emotions. That will turn you on into a real human being again. That will do it. You can come here for the rest of your life and never be changed. An encounter with the God of the Bible will change you. Real prayer, real prayer changes you. Did you hear that? Prayer isn't going to God and, oh, I didn't study last night. Help me pass this test. Right? Oh, help me get out of the... Real prayer isn't necessarily circumstantial. God, change my circumstances. God, help my situation. Real prayer is about us being changed, changing our perspective. Maybe I'm in an argument with a person and I go and I'm, I'm going to pour my heart up to God and tell them how right I am and how wrong they are and I've been mistreated. And God go, you are arrogant. Do you remember you deserve nothing but hell? How can a person who deserves nothing but hell be complaining about how they just got treated? You're breathing. That's grace. And I can take that back anytime I want. Do you see how a right understanding of our humanity, of our sinfulness, it changes us in the presence of God. Real prayer changes you. It melts your heart. It softens or breaks your will. It kills your flesh. It fills you with what we see here in Abram here, a humble boldness. Abram doesn't just go, I'm dust and ashes, oh. He goes, I'm dust and ashes, oh. But how about 45? God says, all right, I'll spare the whole city for the sake of 50. Abram goes, oh, I'm nothing but dust and ashes, oh. How about 45? Oh, Lord, you are so good. You are so just. 40. Oh, I dare not. 35, 30, 25, 20, 20, 20, right? And this is this bartering session it sounds like he's doing. Oh, man, only the God of the gospel can change a person like this. So Abram goes 50, 45, 40, 35, 30, 20, 10. And then what does he do? Suppose 10 are found there, he answered. For the sake of 10, God said, I will not destroy the whole city. If I can find 10 righteous people, I won't destroy the whole city. I'll save the whole city. I love righteousness. Our God loves righteousness so much that for the sake of 10 righteous people, he'll spare a whole city. Oh, what a gracious and righteous loving God. And then what what happens? What should happen? That's what happens. Look, verse 33. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned home. 
Does this strike anybody as odd? Does this seem like 50, 40, 30, 20, 10? Deuces. Like, what, what are we waiting on? Right? Five? How about five? Three? Two? One? See, prayer to a real God has done its work. It's not even about the city. It's about Abram. Prayer with the real God has changed him. He brought his mixed up theology both sides of God. I don't know how to do this. He brought it to God in prayer and God has given him the answer that he didn't want. Only a real God can do that. Only a real God can give you the truth, the answer that you don't want to hear. Only the real God can do that. And Abraham Abraham is bold enough and humble enough to go to God and hear an answer he doesn't want to hear. Abraham has come to realize That in light of God's holiness, there's not one person in that city who's truly righteous. Why doesn't he go to one? Because he knows there's not one. He knows he's out of luck. If God is calling in his bets, if God is calling in his debts, there's not one who's righteous. Now listen, can I ask you, is this how you pray? Do you plead for your neighbors? Do you cry for your city? Do you weep for them? Do you weep for those who don't know Christ? Those you work next to. Maybe you've worked next to them for years. You went to school to... Do you pray for them? Do you plead for them? This is what the gospel, when we believe it, what it does to our heart. Do you pray for those who you believe to be wicked? Abram is pleading with people he knows to be wicked. He knows what they're doing is awful. It's ruining society. If he's, you know, it's, it's destroying humanity. It's not promoting the, the flourishing of a human society. He knows it's awful, but he's saying, God, please save them. If you can find five, 10, 20, right? He's pleading for them. Abram gets it. He gets the heart of God. He gets who the real God is. He's just, but he doesn't want to see anybody perish. Do you pray like this? I know you don't. And neither do I. You want to know why? Because we forget the gospel. Some people like to read stories and say, where am I at in this story? 
Who am I? If I'm in the story, who am I? I know all of us want to be Abraham. I think that's me. But I just pretty much laid it out that you're not Abram. Do you pray like this? No. Then you're not Abram. You're not him. If we want to find ourselves in this story, we need to look inside the walls of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham knew that he was no better than those in Sodom. He was just as guilty. He deserved God's wrath, and he deserved, and he had earned God's judgment. He was not righteous. Abraham couldn't even say, hey, look at my righteousness. Look, will you spare the city based on my righteousness? Abraham knew he couldn't do that. He wasn't righteous. But for the grace of God, if it wasn't for the grace of God, Abraham would be in Sodom with him. The only reason Abram is not in Sodom is because of God's obedience and God's pursuit and God choosing him and God revealing himself to him. Abraham would be in Egypt or Abraham would be in Sodom. Abraham would be out in his sin somewhere. But God has chased him down. So if we want to find ourselves in this story, be real. We're in Sodom. Unrighteous people on the bad end of God dealing out justice. But I want you to see, Abraham was on to something here. As I close, Abraham was on to something here. See, God does love righteousness. He does love justice. And he loves them so much that he is willing to look at the righteousness one man. He's willing to look at the righteousness of his son, the perfectly righteous God-man, Jesus Christ, who wouldn't stand before God haggling over the salvation of a city, but would hang before God to purchase the salvation of a world. And it pleased God. It made him happy to allow Jesus, the perfect man, to take God's wrath and God's justice. That God spilled out all of his fury against all sins and sinners. And he spilled out that fury, poured it out. He poured out the wrath on his son. And Jesus drank that wrath deeply. The father was pleased to impute our sin to Jesus because of our sin to count him who knew no sin as a sinner. And Jesus was pleased to obey the Father and die for us willingly. And the Spirit is pleased to impute the righteousness of Jesus into us by faith in his work called the gospel. Our sin is imputed to Jesus and by grace through faith, his righteousness is imputed or counted as our own. See, Abraham acted like a priest He's standing between the city and between God. 
He's acting as a priest going between God. But Jesus is our great high priest standing right now before the throne of God, pleading our righteousness because of his finished work. Abraham goes home unable to save the city, but Jesus sits down at the right hand of the God, at right the right hand of God after declaring that the work of salvation is finished. Abraham, 50, 45, 40, 30, 35, 30, 20, 10. Oh, I gotta go home, it's not gonna work. Jesus is by stands at the right hand of God, at the throne of grace, and he sits down because his work has been completed. God has accepted the offering. God has found that offering worthy. Our sin can be imputed to him by faith, and his righteousness can be imputed to us by faith. Stare at that. Pray about that. Meditate on that. Read about that. Memorize that. And ask God to so cause your head, heart, and hands to believe and to be impacted by that, that he would melt your heart for the lost like he did Abram. The gospel is the only thing that can change your heart for good. We've all sat, we've all sat and listened to sermons that said, go out and share your faith. Shame on you. Why don't you love Jesus? You're, you know, we've all been guilted into it. We've all had our, maybe our pride motivated. We've all, but have we asked God to melt our heart? Have we so stared at the gospel that we're overwhelmed at how Jesus came after us? How Jesus pleaded for us. He was the great missionary. And when we embrace the gospel, he makes us into missionaries. I pray that we would be gospel people. I pray that we would be people who do this type of praying and this type of theological wrestling with God. Is that what you want? I pray that we'd be people that serve a real God, a living God. For those, how do we make this happen? How do we make this ours? By faith. Faith and repentance. And listen, Repentance isn't feeling just, isn't just feeling sorry for your sins. Everybody feels sorry for their sins. Everybody regrets things. Repentance is turning from that way of doing and believing and praying. It's turning towards the real God of the Bible. Turning away from selfishness, turning away from my idea of what God should like and what God should be like. Turn away from my idols to the real God. And before we take part of communion, I ask that you would seek your heart. You would ask the Spirit to search your heart, to reveal to you hidden sins, any areas that you're unaware of, or you need to turn from them and turn to the living God. And that God would melt your heart. I am dust and ashes.
Yes, you are. But you're loved, dust and ashes. God took the dust once and he formed Adam. And he can take the dust now and form us into the new humanity. People filled with his spirit, sent on mission to live for him in this city. I pray that he would do it again. People that come before him as dust and ashes, he would mold us and build us and fill us and breathe into us and send us on mission again. Father, this is your word. This is your work. This is too good to be true. That you would look on the righteous, the righteousness of one man, the sinless, spotless son of God, that you would look upon him and you would spare me. Who am I that deserves such grace? Father, I pray that our hearts would respond appropriately to the gospel, that you would make us alive, Father, I pray that you would allow us and enable us to begin to come before you and pray like Abraham. Pray humble, but bold. And that we would see our neighbors come to faith. We would see our co-workers. We would see our family members. We would see those in our city who do not know you and who are far from you. And maybe they call themselves spiritual, but not religious. You would call them into a relationship you'd call them into a covenant community of faith. We pray all this for your name, for your glory. Father, we ask that you would bless us with your presence this morning. Bless us with your spirit as we partake in the Lord's Supper, the body that has been broken for us. We will take it and eat. The blood that has been shed for us, we will take it and drink. This is the cup of our salvation. This is the cup of the new covenant. This is, the, this is how you purchased for us your righteousness. You drank the cup of the wrath of God and your body was broken and your blood was shed. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.